0: Man, amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today. We're going to be Luke chapter twenty, verses nine through fifteen. Or I'm sorry, nine through nineteen. Uh, and and uh, as you turn there, as you kind of get settled in there, let me just let me just talk to you about a, a problem we have. You probably don't think about. it. You're probably not even thinking, recognizing it when you wake up in the morning. But we have a problem. It's a serious problem. It doesn't originate with us, but it's intrinsic to every one of us. We all have it. It's something that's common to every one of us and that is that we would rather be owners than managers. We would rather be owners than stewards. We would rather exercise authority than submit to authority. We would rather make rules than submit to rules. Now some of you, as I'm saying that, some of you recognize immediately this is who, this is who I am. I, 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 I agree. I don't like that. And so just, just that's where I stand. So I'm right there With you, I joined the army when I was 18 and I thought I'm going to go be in the army. I got off the plane uh, going to basic training and I walked through the airport. My plane landed late. I had no control over that. My plane landed late. I got to the USO office where I was supposed to meet the bus and the other people who were headed to Fort Knox for basic training and they were all gone. But there were some MPs who were carrying a prisoner who was AWOL back to Fort Knox and they said we'll give you a ride. And they put me in the middle and the prisoner by the door. And so that was the first indication something's off here. Something's not right. And then as we're on our way to Fort Knox, they're making comments and ridiculing uh, people in basic training. And then the officer in charge, who was sitting in the front right seat, he's riding shotgun. He starts offering people in the car gum. And he offers... The guy driving, he said, hey, you want a piece of gum? Yeah, I'd love a piece of gum. And He offers, offers the MP next to me a piece of gum, and he's like, yeah, I'd love one. And he offers the prisoner a piece of gum, but not me. What I quickly realized was that I had become a piece of property. I didn't like it at all, and that proved to be true over the next six years. As I was in the military, I was told over and over what to do, and I, it graded against me. In fact, when I got out at my six-year point, I got out and I thought, I'm not going to be owned by anybody until I went to work for somebody, and suddenly they had expectations of me. Even as I raised through the ranks at that business and the, the, the boss gave me more, more freedom, more authority, more responsibility, I still always answered to someone. Even when he was letting me do what I wanted to do, the customers didn't let me do whatever I wanted to do. And I learned, I have learned through my life, I do not, I am resistant, I reject, I, I, I refuse to be ruled. It's, it's uh, intrinsic to me. Now, some of you are there with me, and you get it, you understand it. Others of you are like, no, nah, that's not me, that's not my personality, I, I don't like to exercise authority, I don't want to be in charge of anybody, I don't... I, don't, I would just as soon be in the back. Like, my personality is one that I'm in the background. I'm, I'm great with just being a supporting member of the cast. I don't need to be out in the front and getting all the accolades. So this isn't an issue of personality. This desire to be owners and not managers is an issue of our nature. Kids do it. There's a reason we talk about the terrible twos. If you've been a parent of a, of a two-year-old, you know this is true. This is not. I mean, it's, it, sometimes it doesn't wait till two. But the reality is there's a reason why we have that stereotype. But when they're teenagers, I know when I was a teenager, I like if my mom had just known what I knew, if she knew as much as I did, then she would understand why I acted the way I did and did the things I did and would not listen to what she said. If she just was as smart as I was, that's for you. So I won't ever admit that again, but here we are. But that is what we do. I mean, teenagers, we think we got it figured out. We think we know what's going on. And nobody is going to tell us as teenagers what we're going to do. Every time your boss makes a policy that you think is not fair and you just kind of ignore it, (coughs) reject it. No Facebook at work. Ah, he doesn't really mean me. He means all those other slackers that don't do their job as well as I do mine. Every time we climb in a car. You're under the authority of the, the laws of our land. But how many of us are, ah, five, ten miles an hour, cops don't care. They're not going to pull me over. That's not, that's, that's, that, that's not the law. The law is the, the speed limit set, right? So we're supposed to obey it and we reject it. Every one of us that are control freaks, that have plans made for not just today, but tomorrow, and, and really even into next months. She's not in here this time, so I can talk to you about my wife who is a planning machine. She can tell you what day of the week a certain date is in the next few months because she's already got a plan around that date that she can figure out, oh, October 9th, or I'm sorry, let's say December 10th is a whatever. She knows it. But everyone that's like that, when the plan doesn't go to plan. You get angry and frustrated because people aren't doing what you expect them to do. Because you like to exercise control, authority. Even now, as I'm talking to you about this, I would be willing to bet there's at least one or two people in the room. At least one or two people in the room that are thinking, I'm not, I'm not resistant to authority. I don't know what you're talking about. It's some guy up there telling me what my problem is. I'll tell you what my problem is, and it's not authority. Or is it? See, this this is intrinsic to us. It's a problem we have. In fact, the supreme demonstration of this is not external to us. The supreme demonstration of our problem with authority is not what we do on the outside. But the very fact that we, not just as a person, but typically as a culture... As a people, typically, we just don't want anyone telling us what to do. I'll determine what truth is. I'll determine what's good for me. I'll determine this, that, and the other thing. No one else is going to tell me. I'm going to state my own case and live my own life. Well, why is that a problem? I mean, isn't that the way America was founded? Isn't That's just who we are. Because the reality is is we are not the authority. We are all under a supreme authority. whether we recognize it or not, whether we want to submit to it or not, we're all under a supreme authority, just like the Jewish leaders who Jesus was confronting. So this is where we've been. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. And he has faced nothing but resistance, and he is facing rejection by the very people he came to save. God owns everything. He is the supreme authority, and he's only going to allow this for so long. So the, the problem that the Jewish leaders had are the problems that we have, and, and the lessons are good for all of us. The lessons that this parable we're going to study today are good for all of us. Luke 20, we'll begin reading in verse 29, or or verse 9, read through 19. It says, and he began to tell the people this parable. Standing in the middle of the temple that he has just freshly purified at the beginning of the week, he has pushed out all the people who were using it to, to sell and cheat his people. He pushed them all out. He drove them out of the out of the out of the temple. He took up residence there, essentially there every day, teaching and preaching the gospel. And in the middle of this, he's 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 uh, 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 gosh, what, they they interact with him. They they approach him and they talk to him and they and they say, "By what authority do you do this?" And he, and he shows them that he's got greater authority than they do. And as a result of that, then he begins to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. I want you to notice the, the increasing Tension, the increasing pressure on his servants. First they beat him. This one they beat and treated shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. The idea of wounding is a deeper wound than just a beating, like he's bleeding out. And cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is, is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to those to, or I'm sorry, give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, so this is now the response. Jesus has just taught the parable. This is the response of the people. When, the, when they heard this, they said, Surely not. This stuff can't be given away. Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is in Jerusalem. His ministry in Israel over the previous three years has resulted in people determining that he is the prophet that had been promised by God. Over and over, in the, especially in the first chapters of, of Luke, we see it. He is the prophet. They, they're, they're recognizing his, this. They're, they're wondering, is he the prophet? They're like, I think he's a prophet. I don't know if he's a prophet. Some people are saying if he's a prophet, he wouldn't hang out with the people he hangs out with. Even he affirms his identity as a prophet. They adjust at the very beginning of this week. When he had entered into Jerusalem, they had received him triumphantly. This is the king that's entering. And they're, they're laying their cloaks on the ground and palm fronds as he rides in on the colt of a donkey. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, for he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're celebrating. They're recognizing him as their king. And last week, as we saw, he walks into the temple. And he looks at what is happening. And he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he flips tables over and he drives out those that were impure and using the temple for impure purposes. And he stands in the temple day after day after day until he's eventually arrested. And he teaches and preaches the gospel and demonstrates himself to the people that he is the prophet. He is the king and he now has taken his place as the true high priest He is the greatest and most supreme authority. There is no other role that God had established for his people to exercise authority. Jesus has come and filled them all. And yet, as they hear this parable, they're angry. And they sought that very hour to kill him. They wanted to get their hands on him and rid themselves of him. What in this parable is so compelling? Well, it's really, we can, we can walk through it in three different, three different places. So it's kind of an, an, it's an allegory of the history, the present circumstances, and the future uh, uh, of, of Israel, of the Jewish leaders in Israel. And, and so Jesus kind of tells us this allegory to help them see not just what has been, but what is coming. It seems there's one overarching lesson. We're going to, I'm going to give you the overarching lesson that sums it all up, and then we're going to walk through it. And I think you'll see it laid out there. Our Lord's patience is long but not limitless. Our Lord's patience is long but not limitless. Continued rejection of him is eventually met with rejection from him. Our Lord's patience is long but not limitless. Continued rejection of him is eventually met with rejection from him. That's exactly what he shows them. In the past, you see it. So, so as they heard, Jesus starts off the parable, a man planted a vineyard. And immediately, every Jew in the room whether, or in the temple court, their ears would have perked up at the words vineyard and a man planting a vineyard. This was their national symbol. It was intrinsic to their identity. They recognized the, the, the symbology and the illusion of the, the vineyards to them as God's people. Israel is the vineyard that uh, that God planted. This isn't something they came up with. This wasn't their idea. This is what the scriptures had been teaching them. This is what the prophets had been telling them. Psalm 80 verses 8 through 9 says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Who is that? It's the Israelites. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Not only did he bring them out of Egypt, but he removed people in front of them and he planted them. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This was the story. This is a summary of what was happening with Israel. When they came out of Egypt, God brought them out. He brings them out. He clears the way ahead of them and he puts them eventually in the promised land and they become a nation. Without God, they aren't a nation. Without God doing this work, they they aren't a people. But maybe the most famous is is in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say, Let me sing for my beloved, or yeah, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. The story of Israel God planted them as a people, set up a watchtower, gave them protection. He gave them what they needed that they could bear grapes. But they did not bear the grapes he planted them to bear. They yielded wild grapes. He goes on in verse 7 For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is their story. They were not what he had planted them to be, they were not producing the fruit he intended them to produce. But they recognized themselves as the vineyard in his commentary on this passage, R. Kent Hughes writes this wor- these words: "The vineyard, Israel connection, was so much a part of their national consciousness that the very temple in which Jesus was standing sported a rich, a richly carved grapevine, 70 cubits high, sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest. "'Gold, the bunches of grapes hanging upon the golden limbs were costly jewels. "'Herod first placed the golden vine there, "'and rich and patriotic Jews would from time to time add to its embellishment.' One contributed a new jeweled grape, another a leaf, and still another cluster of the same precious materials. This vine had immense sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. As much as we might identify with the idea of a a flag, or better yet, the idea and the identity that's represented by the bald eagle, as much as we would connect ourselves to this identity, we see it on patches or badges, we see it on our currency, And we recognize the national identity. For them, it was even deeper, this grapevine. They heard it. They understood it. They knew that they were a part of the story. They knew that Jesus was speaking about them. And they knew that God had planted them as a vine. They knew that they were in the story. And they knew that their sovereign God, who had entered into covenant with them, was in the story. He's the owner of the vineyard. They knew that if not for him, Israel would never have been a nation. They knew that this was his vineyard. And they knew that he was the owner that had left it under the stewardship of the tenants, the priests and the kings who were supposed to lead the nation, who were supposed to, to, to nurture the nation, who were supposed to, to prune back the vine, if you will, who were supposed to take care of and ensure that the, that the vineyard had what it needed, that it could bear the fruit it was intended to bear. But over and over and over in their history, read about the kings, read about the, the, religious, the, the, the religious leadership over and over and over. They abused their authority. They did not live under his responsibility. And they treated Israel, they treated that vineyard as if it was for their own gain. And when the owner sent his servants, they wouldn't give him anything because they saw it all about themselves. Well, who are these servants? These servants that were sent were the prophets. Over and over, repeatedly, God had sent his prophets to his people, calling them to come back to him, calling them to turn back to him. He sent the prophets repeatedly, and they sent them away repeatedly. They rejected, they resisted, they refused to listen. In fact, Jesus, this isn't the first time that Jesus has kind of made this implication. If you think back to Luke chapter 13, I, I know it's been a while since we've been there, but, but Jesus has already been talking about, he'd been talking for some time about getting to Jerusalem. And he's, he, he's told by this group of Pharisees, and we don't know if they liked him, they don't know if they were for him or if they were just trying to manipulate him. We don't, we don't know. But back in Luke chapter 13, this group of Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, you need to get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And and he's like, no, I, I'm not. I'm not going to go anywhere. I've got I've got a mission I have got to do, and I've got. In fact, in fact, a prophet can't can't die away from Jerusalem. He says that Luke chapter thirteen verses thirty three through thirty four. Nevertheless, I may, must go on my way today, and tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This is the reputation that God's people, his priests and his kings, had. A prophet is going to be killed. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. Over and over, they rejected those God had sent them to call and speak on his behalf. This was Jerusalem's reputation. Alfred Plummer, a a theologian from the late 1800s, early 1900s, writing in a commentary on the book of Matthew, writes these words. The uniform hostility of kings, priests, and people to the prophets is one of the most remarkable features in history of the Jews. The amount of hostility varied, and it expressed itself in different ways. On the whole, increasing in intensity. So just as you heard it in the parable, the the intensity increased. The more the servants came, the, the more intense they reacted. On the whole, increasing in intensity, but it was always there. Deeply, as the Jews lamented the cessation of the prophets after the death of Malachi, they generally opposed them. As long as they were granted to them. Till the gift was withdrawn, they seemed to have had little pride in this exceptional grace shown to the nation. And little appreciation of it or thankfulness for it. See, They longed to hear from God, but they did not want to to hear what God had to say. They longed to hear from God, but they did not want to listen to him. They longed to hear from God so long as God said to them the things that they demanded he said. They longed to hear from God so long as the words that they heard were a Firming and approving and, and pumping them up. You see, the thing is, they did not want to be managers or stewards. They wanted to be owners. They didn't want to be under authority. They wanted to exercise authority. They wanted God to be their genie in a bottle that did for them what they expected him to do. Elijah had to run for his life because of his rejection. Amos had to run for his life because they wouldn't have him. Ezekiel was told by God, directly told by God, ignore their rejection, expect their, their, their refusal and their rebellion. You're speaking my word. Expect them to reject you and rebel against you. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two. You know the writer of the book of Isaiah was cut in two. The tradition goes that, that um, King Manasseh had sentenced him to death. And because he had sentenced him to death, he, Isaiah runs. Runs for his life seeking to be safe. He hides inside of a tree and they find him in the tree and he won't come out. And so they cut it down and cut him in two in the process. Jeremiah rejected by the people is thrown in a pit and left to die. And as tradition tells us, he would eventually be stoned, because he was God's prophet, because he spoke God's word. you see the call to prof- to be a prophet? of God to to stand and speak God's word was not a call to have a have a posh lifestyle to have a life of ease and comfort it was to stand and speak truth in the light and in the face of people who did not want to submit to God and they continued to reject they continued to refuse to submit they continued to resist any authority And so the owner of the vineyard says, well, what will I do? I will send my beloved son. And that's present day, not not, not present day today. That's present day as they're standing there in the temple, listening to Jesus tell this story, recognizing that they have just heard their history. They're being brought into the present because Jesus had already made claims to God being his father. In fact, the whole first two chapters of Luke is about Jesus being the son of God. It's not a Christmas story. It is a Christmas story, but it's more than a Christmas story. It's an identify it's a it's a chapter, two chapters that identify him not just as a prophet who serves, but as the son who has been sent. John writes about this in John chapter three, verse three, sixteen. For God so loved the world, whosoever uh, for God so loved the world, that He sent His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son, and Jesus took that claim. And if you question it, just go back. I think it's it, it's it's uh, the the story of when Jesus is in the temple. You know, Mary and and Joseph have left Jerusalem. They're on their way home. They're a day away, and they suddenly realize. Where's our kid? We left our son. How, did that, how could that be? Like, where's he at? They get scared. They get nervous. They begin to search around frantically. They end up in Jerusalem, and they finally find him sitting in the temple teaching God's people, teaching the chief priests. And, and, and when, he, when he answers them, what's wrong? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Jesus is God's son, the son that has been sent. And so not only, not only are they recognizing that he or that they are in the story, not only are they recognizing that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are in the story, they're recognizing that Jesus is in the story. He is the son that God the Father had sent and they further see that because these tenants who had received, the, or who wouldn't receive, the, the servants also wouldn't receive the son. In fact, they had determined that they were going to kill the son. What had they determined that they were going to do with Jesus? Kill him. They recognized this. They saw this. They saw this happening. They knew that he was speaking against them. But even more, this story gives us a clue as to their motive. This is his son. If we kill him, the inheritance is ours. We don't have to be managers anymore. We get to be owners. We get to replace him. We get this all to our self. They have a problem. And so they kill the son. And Jesus asked the question, what will the owner do? Destroy them and take away what they've been given and give it to others. It moves from present-day reality of the fact that they wanted to rid themselves of the Son of God to the fact that because they longed to do it and in some measure would succeed, destruction was coming. You see, their ultimate rejection would receive the owner's ultimate rejection, judgment, condemnation, and loss. People balk when a preacher talks about God's wrath. It's just pretty natural. I mean, it happens everywhere. The world wants to, that we live in wants to deny God's anger. In fact, there are preachers who would stand up and tell you God's not angry. In fact, there's one preacher who made a name for himself off, the, off of a tour around our nation that said God's not angry. God is angry. We killed his son. He has every right to be angry. God is angry. And if we continue to reject him, he will reject us. It's right for him to be angry. It would be wrong. It would be crazy for us to deny him this reality. God demonstrates right here and right now he's angry. (laughs) Why wouldn't he be? Imagine, parents, if this was your child. Imagine, imagine. Imagine. That you're the one who sent your son or your daughter and she was rejected. She was bullied and beaten and accused and ridiculed. Imagine going, sending your child into the schoolhouse and they beat him up. Imagine your daughter gets hooked up in school with a bunch of mean girls. What happens within you? What more would happen if they killed your child? Why would, we, why would we think that God wouldn't be angry? God's holy and he's righteous and he's pure. He, he wouldn't get angry. No. That just means his anger is holy and it's pure and it's righteous. He won't sin in his anger, but he is angry. And because of, his, because of our rejection, because of their rejection, he is bringing judgment Judgment is coming. They were going to lose everything. And you see their response. It's in verse 16. You see their response. Surely not. Surely not. This is the strongest Greek word that they could have said. The strongest uh, negative response that they could offer. Paul uses it in his letters. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They they, they, They think this is a horrific idea. It may it never be. But he looked at them directly, looked at them directly, right in their eyes. What about this then? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, Jesus, the son that had been sent by God, is the cornerstone chosen by God. Even though they would kill him, even though they would reject him, nothing would change about Jesus. He would remain the prophet priest, and king. His authority wouldn't be changed. His position wouldn't be changed. His identity wouldn't be changed. His, uh, nothing about him would be diminished. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He draws that out from Psalm 118, verse 22. But then he professes even further the judgment. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What God had chosen, they had rejected. What God in his authority had established, they had refused and were continuing to resist. In fact, all the more having heard this parable, they desperately, desperately wanted to rid themselves of Jesus. Our Lord's patience is long, but not limitless. Continued rejection of him, Will eventually meet rejection from Him. Like their problem, we have a problem. We don't like being under authority any more than they did. We don't like God to meddle in our lives any more than they did. We just expect Him to be there when we need Him, not fully give ourselves to Him. This really truly is not born in, I mean, this isn't, doesn't originate with us. This doesn't start with us. This is natural. This is an, an issue of our nature. In the very beginning, God says, let us make man in our image. God created man, both male and female, in His image. We bear, we bear His likeness. It's like we're a reflection of Him. And yet, when the the serpent enters, when Satan enters the garden and says, Hey, I got some fruit for you. It's good for food. Well, what could he be keeping from us? I got some fruit for you. It will make you wise. What more could we know? Is he keeping us from being as smart as we possibly could? It will make you like God. God. Completely forgetting that they had been created like God. Eve eats the fruit, gives the, the fruit to Adam, and he eats also. And everybody born, save one, bears this issue. We prefer to be our own God and create gods that bow to us so we don't bow, have to bow to the God who is. We have a problem. But we don't have to react the same way. We don't have to respond in the same way that these Jewish leaders did. In fact, as we see all of the the issues that that plague them, because of what Jesus has done and because even in their reaction in in, in killing him, they didn't defeat him. They didn't destroy him. they They simply... They simply proved their own allegiance. But the one that they rejected, God has made the cornerstone. Because he is the cornerstone, we now can react and respond differently than they did. We can hear this message, and by God's grace and through the work of his spirit, our hearts can be led to respond rightly. See, our Lord's patience is long, but not limitless, so we can submit to his authority rather than resist him. The Jewish leadership would not submit. They would not recognize him. They would not answer to him. They would only challenge him. In fact, they're going to challenge him some more. They're going to end up bringing him uh, to trial and, and, and seeking to do everything they can to rid themselves of this problem. But even after they rid themselves of the problem, or so they thought they'd rid themselves of this problem, he rose. He rose. And his people are established. And the New Testament is written. And his call is to obey. To submit. In fact, this was his call before he ever was even, even killed. The last night before, if, before his death, his, his trial and, and, and accusations were made, and before his execution is, is, can, uh, happens, he's sitting with his disciples and he's teaching them and preparing them for the, day that that's the, for, for the next day's events. And he tells them, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He goes on, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, this is all right in one section, like this is, I think he's trying to make a point. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. In verse 24, he says it a little differently, but it's still the, still the same meaning. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I think the point that he's trying to make is that if we love him, we obey him. If we don't obey him, we don't love him. If we won't submit to him, it's not just just an issue of our nature against authority. It's our issue of a love for ourselves. We see this also in the Jewish leadership. In the very last line of the, of, the, of the passage we read, it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They desperately wanted to be rid of Jesus, but they loved themselves so much they wouldn't act because they knew the people would stone them. They loved themselves. They did not love God. They did not submit to God because they would not love God. They loved themselves. Our Lord's patience is long but not limitless because of Jesus We can submit to his authority rather than resist him. Our Lord's patience is long but not limitless. So because of Jesus, we can steward what he gives rather than rob him. These tenants, these stewards, it was right of the owner to expect them to give him him a portion. It was right for him to send servants and expect a fruit back from them. It was right for him. To do that. It was right for God to, 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 to say, hey, here's my people. I want you priests and you kings to lead them and nurture them and care for them. But when when I send my servants, I, 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 want to see, I want to see fruit from your work. I want to see the goodness of your work in them. I want to see the goodness of my people being increased. But they didn't steward what God had given them in accordance with the instruction that He had left them. But even after they rid themselves of Jesus, God God took what they rejected and made him the cornerstone. And he established him. And now because of him, we can steward wisely what he's given us. Peter gives us instruction to the scattered and suffering church across Asia Minor, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. You received a gift not for yourself, but to serve one another. One another as good stewards of God's buried grace. You don't own the gifts that God's given to you. You're a steward of the grace that God has given to you. You don't own His grace. You don't command His grace. You don't, you simply. Steward it, and as one of his people, you now get to get to, to hand it away to give it away, that other people get to enjoy and appreciate the grace that God has given you, and if this is working and functioning properly you 're not just giving that grace away you 're receiving his grace from others who have received his grace and are stewarding that grace so that others are blessed and benefited by it our lord's patience, our lord 's patience is long but not limitless. So steward, steward what he's given you. Don't rob him. Don't keep from him what's due him. Our Lord's patience is long, but not limitless. So worship him with your life rather than continue to refuse him. See, in the same way that the, the vineyard uh, was, was supposed to produce fruit and honor him with its life, God's people are to honor him with their life. God is due the glory that comes from his people. He's due the worship that we're to offer. The Jewish leaders wouldn't, couldn't, because they were rejecting the the prophet, the priest, and the king. But because of him, we now can. We're doing a Bible study on Thursday morning with, men, these, with a group of men and, and, and everybody. We've been working through the book of Hebrews. And, and this week we came to this passage that, that, oh man, as I read it, I just, I just heard these words from Jesus. T- warning, preparing, just, just talking about an eternal kingdom that would be established. What, what he's doing. And the fact that he was once Rejected. But the writer of Hebrews says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. We reject the prophets, we won't escape. We reject Jesus who came in the flesh, we won't escape. When the Spirit speaks from heaven and and, and makes all things new, if we continue to reject him, we will not escape. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake only the, not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There is a reality that he is establishing an eternal kingdom. He is building a spiritual building that will never be torn down, that will be established for all eternity. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of that building. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful. Look, look at the contrast. There's a contrast between refusal and rejection to being grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. No longer refusing, no longer rejecting, but worshiping Him in gratitude. Being grateful for who he is and what he's done. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, and he will either burn you up or refine your eternal works. Instead of refusing him, let us worship him. And finally, our Lord's patience is long, but not limitless. So trust him rather than reject him. This might be the most important point that I can make today. Because the reality is if you don't trust him you're not going to worship him. If you don't trust him you're not going to steward the things that he's given you for him. If you don't trust him you will never submit to him. And truly this was the greatest problem that the that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes had that day standing there in the temple. They did not trust Jesus. They would not believe him. They would not express any faith in him. And so they resisted, they refused, and they rejected. But the stone that they rejected, God has made the cornerstone. And because God has made him the cornerstone, because of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrected life, we don't have to be crushed. We can be built onto the stone. Paul, making this point to uh, the church in Rome, speaking about why Israel lost its place. Romans 9, verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They did not trust but as if it were based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone peter makes this point to the church in across asia minor first peter chapter 2 7 through 8 so the honor is for you who believe the honor is for you who believe? Those who believe are built on the stone. They're, they're, the, the cornerstone is established, and it, it, it sets the, the, the shape of the building. It sets the place of the building. It, it, it's the authority from which the building is built out of and built upon. And from it, the foundation is laid, and from it, walls are laid upon the foundation. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And in Jesus' own words, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him just because they wouldn't believe the words he was saying because they wouldn't trust the prophet that had come to express God's truth. They wouldn't trust him as their priest who would be the intermediary between them and their God. They wouldn't trust him as their king who had all authority to command them to obey. The thing is, whether we like it or not, God has established him as the cornerstone. And if we reject Jesus as that, in that position and in that role, we have a problem. There's an old proverb that goes like this. If a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. If a pot falls on a stone, Woe to the pot. In either case, woe to the pot. See, the stone doesn't change. His position doesn't change. His authority doesn't change. His identity doesn't change. But what we do with that cornerstone determines whether we are blessed and honored and built upon the stone or trip against it until it finally falls on us and crushes us. The Lord's patience is long, but not limitless. Continued rejection of him will eventually meet rejection from him. So if you're here today and you recognize your, 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 your spirit to refuse and resist authority, fights against him. In every aspect of your life, I would just encourage you to consider this. Even, especially, especially those of you that sit here every week, who attend church every week. He's not speaking to people who are lost in the world. He was speaking to good, church-going folks. Repent. Relent in your resistance. Relent. Relent in your rejection, relent in your refusal to fully submit under his authority and receive the blessing of his power. Be blessed by his ownership and rulership. Because truly, we are not owners. None of us are. And if you have never, ever repented, begun repenting, I've been praying as I have thought through this message and worked through it in my own heart and mind this week that the Lord would convict you and save you because eventually, eventually judgment comes. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful for your grace and your goodness. I'm grateful that you saw fit not to end the story at the rejection of your son, but that you made him our cornerstone. Would you deal with us now? Would your Holy Spirit speak? Give Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, so that our feet can walk in the truth. Would you move on us today, Father? Would you help us to, to not just be religious, but to live out of a great and deep love for you that we might submit, for your son that we might obey his word? Would you help us to see that we're simply managers, that we're simply stewards of all that you've given us, that we would Use the things in our life, our times, our our time, our treasures, our talents, our our energies. That it might bear fruit for your glory and fruit for you to enjoy. Would you help us to see the idols that we worship? And submit uh, submit to and turn from them that we might worship you. Father, move on us that we might trust you. And where we don't, would you help us to see it, that we could repent and trust, repent and believe. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.